Fiends and horror hounds. This is Brett from Dimension Z. Joined as I am every week by Greg of the Dead. How you doing, man? Doing good. We are joined by Troy Howarth, author and what is the term? Cult cinema critic is the way you could describe it. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, it's uh, nice to be here. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for coming. I was really excited. We have a mutual friend who connected us here because I swear in our area you don't meet anybody who's even heard of Italian horror. And he was describing it to me because he's not a big horror guy. He goes, well, it's those movies that are made in Italy where they have all the subtitles and everything. I'm like, you mean like Argento and Fulci? He's like, I think that was the names. And then, so that's perfect. So how did you get into all this? Oh, that's a long story. Do you really want to hear it? <clears throat> oh, please. That's all oh, we yes, do. Oh, yes, definitely. <laughs> um, well, I'm probably, I'm probably a good bit older than you guys. I was born in 77. So growing up in the uh, old days uh, before streaming and uh, everything was available um you were very much a slave of the tv guide and what was available uh, on tv and at the local mom and pop store where they had videos and uh my love of horror in general comes from my late mother um she always used to record the late movie and i would watch them um you know probably way too young but i would watch them and i loved this stuff for as long as i can remember when i was very young i saw a movie called barren blood directed by Mario Bava, who is, for me, you know, the ultimate, um, my favorite director in general, but certainly I think, you know, anybody who's interested in Italian horror, you need to know his films. Um, and, I mean, I was just a kid. I had no idea what a foreign movie was. I had no idea what another country was. So it's just, you know, it was just sort of, it, it, there was something about the movie that was really weird and unusual and it stood out to me and it made an impression on me. And then now over the years, you know, in the 80s, uh, either on VHS rentals or sometimes even on TV, believe it or not, I caught up with things like Lucio Fulci's The Black Cat, uh, Fulci's Zombie, um, Dario Argento's Suspiria and Creepers and things like that. And around the time I graduated high school, I was um, just kind of out of the blue, really, really interested in seeing a better quality copy of Baron Blood because the one I had was, you know, quite beat up by that time and in bad shape. And I discovered that the old uh, VHS, uh, you know, pre-record version that used to be available for rental was no longer available anymore. So I was a little disappointed by that and thought I'd just have to make do with what I had. Then, lo and behold, I saw that there was a Laserdisc coming out of it with Lisa and the Devil, which is another Mario Bava film, uh, widescreen and uncut versions. And uh, seeing those just kind of opened the floodgates for me, and I've been absolutely obsessed with Italian horror films and thrillers ever since brett is the one who usually brings up all our italian horror movies to me and i won't lie sometimes i yell at him for it <laughs> now you'll have to settle an argument here not an argument but like a theory is this true when it's always kind of in legend that it was very like assembly line system for some of them like just get it out get it out the biggest example is fulci's city of the living dead from the gates of hell trilogy mm -hmm. how the whole ending was just gone so they just kind of threw together an ending a scene that wasn't supposed to be it or were they on such a tight schedule that this was commonplace well it depends it's not a, it's not a blanket sort of a thing i mean somebody like argento was working with large budgets and he had lots of time 
Um, so he, he was never obliged to do that. Fulci was working on much lower budgets. And yeah, to a certain extent, it was true. It was very much a kind of assembly line type of a thing where you had so much time to make the films. And if you, you know, going over really wasn't much of an option. The story goes that when they were assembling the picture, um, Fulci's editor noticed that uh, some of the footage at the end um, was um, compromised by a uh, kind of emulsion problem and uh, that caused some sort of fragmenting effect in the image and, and it wasn't going to be usable and they were thinking about how they were going to approach it and they improvised the ending that we have now which really in a way doesn't make a hell of a lot of sense but I mean it's okay because the movie's so surreal that it can get away with that. I always took it as they were just terrified of John John, so I was okay with it. <laughs> <laughs> Little John John. At least he wasn't as badly dubbed though as poor uh, poor Bob in House by the Cemetery. <laughs> Some of the dubbing's rough. I won't. It's odd. I notice it way more in Argento than Fulci. It's just an odd little thing. Honestly, the first time I watched Fulci movies, I didn't realize that it was another language dubbed. Well, and that's something. There's a kind of a misunderstanding when it comes to these films because a lot of them were actually shot in English uh, because Italian genre films, funnily enough, didn't tend to be all that popular in Italy. They tended to be more popular elsewhere, especially in America and in Great Britain. So they very often, and also because they would have very often an American actor or an English actor in the lead. And so they very often would shoot them in English. But sometimes it was kind of a pigeon English, you know, so it would depend if you had an actor who really knew how to speak English and was comfortable in the language, they were fine with it. But other people might be speaking their lines phonetically, uh, which can be a little weird at times. So every Italian genre film from this period is dubbed in whatever language you see it. The Italian version is dubbed, the English version is dubbed and so forth. Um, the quality of the English dubs, I mean, that depends on the film. I think a lot of them actually work very well in English. Um, I think really through the 1980s films, I think most of them work very well in English. It was later on that they tend to be a little bit more kind of ropey with the quality of the vocal performances. So some of Argento's later films, um, you know, from the 90s and into the 2000s haven't worked as well in English for that reason. Whereas a movie like, um, you know, Deep Red or Suspiria, uh, which actually has a fair amount of live production audio in it as well. Um, a lot of those movies work perfectly well in English for me, so it, it, it's kind of a case by case thing. Huh. I say, bringing up Deep Red, I love that like uh, that main theme song on that so much. Like, yeah. I will just listen to it driving around. Yeah. And like my old job, you used to be able to like listen to music at your desk really low, and I would <laughs> listen to that Deep Red theme, and I would constantly get whenever it hits that like ding like mm -hmm. different parts of the song. And my boss would like shoot his head up and be like, Brett. I'd be like, what? Everyone else can, like, uh, he can listen to Leonard Skinner. Why can't I listen to the Deep Red theme? That's right. Offices need more Goblin progressive rock music. Yes. Have you ever seen Goblin? Because I know they came through Pittsburgh a couple years ago, and I really wanted to see them, but I didn't get to. I desperately wanted to go. Unfortunately, it didn't happen. I think I think they were actually showing Deep Red, and they were scoring it live, which yeah. would have been a hell of a thing oh. to have seen. I couldn't go. I was devastated by that. I did go to see in Philadelphia back in 2015 Fabio Fritzi, who did uh, a lot of the Fulci scores, and uh, he has a, a tour called uh, Fritzi de Fulci, where he plays a lot of his music from movies like Zombie, Gates of Hell, The Beyond, um, The Psychic, and, and Cat in the Brain. 
Uh, that was a wonderful experience. And because of a friend of mine who helped me with the book that I wrote about Fulci, uh, that Fritzi actually wrote a, uh, a piece for, um, I was actually given the opportunity to go back and meet the band and, and all of that. And that was, that was a lot of fun, but Goblin, unfortunately, no, I've not had a chance to see them. Well, that's awesome. You got to meet them though. Yeah. Uh, Fabio Fritzi is one of the nicest people you could ever hope to meet. He's just a really, really sweet guy who you can tell really appreciates the fact that people care about these movies. Cause that wasn't always the case. They were kind of, I think they were just regarded as disposable kind of garbage when they first came out and it, and it took years. Um, Fulci passed away in 1996. I very much wanted to meet him. And uh, it just so happened his own, one and only American convention appearance uh, was I think in February of, two, of 1996. And we were hit with a really bad blizzard that year. And so I couldn't go. And I thought, well, you know, he'll be back. Well, March of that year, he died. Um, so <laughs> bad luck there, too. But at least he had an opportunity at that time to see all these American fans who were just nuts about his film. So I'm glad that he was able to see that. Uh, whereas, you know, some of the earlier people, like well, certainly Mario Bava, who died all the way back in 1980, never had a, a chance to see that. A lot of those films for years were not taken seriously at all. Oh, definitely. Similar to the whole Ed Wood syndrome about if, could you imagine if he could see now, like the people are still talking about Plan Nine from outer space? Yeah, I mean it's true. Very often, time is the ultimate critic. Um, a lot of these movies, because they are, I mean, horror films in general aren't taken very seriously. John Carpenter's always said that, you know, in in Europe he's taken seriously as an artist, whereas over here he's a bum. Uh, you know, it, in America, horror is seen as kind of like a step above porn. Uh, a lot of people don't take it seriously and they think of it as kind of, you know, just disgusting and disreputable. So um, a lot of the most talented people who worked in this genre really didn't have the opportunity to see their movies being appreciated because it, it takes time. And certainly by the time I started to get really, really hardcore into these movies in the mid nineties, um, that was kind of around the time that a lot of this attention was starting to be paid on them. You'd see things like in Fangoria, for example, uh, big long articles about some of the people, even minor people associated with these movies. So it kind of, that was around the time it seemed like a lot of that interest was starting to take off. Now you were saying, um, like you started watching these movies like in the seventies and eighties on like the late night, like almost like thriller, like specials on like Saturday night and whatnot. Yeah. Well, not, not seventies. I was 77. So I was a little young for the, <laughs> but the eighties. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We used to have chiller theater on channel 11. Um, hosted by Chili Billy Cardilli, who you will see in Night of the Living Dead. Uh, he plays himself in it, you know, Bill, Bill Cardilli. Um, but yeah, that that's where I really started to see a lot of this stuff. Okay, yeah, that's what I wanted to see, is like, if you grew up with any, like, late night horror hosts, like Zachary or like Svengoolie, who's like still around. <laughs> yeah, uh, Chili Billy was my big, big one. There was another guy who just passed away a couple years ago named Commander USA, who used to be on Commander USA's Groovy Movies, and it was a very cheesy but very endearing show that was on through the better part of the uh, '80s, where the idea is he's, you know, he's some kind of retired superhero gone to pot who who lives uh, underneath a <laughs> shopping mall and, and shows bad movies, um, and uh, you know he has his pal's Lefty, is his sidekick Lefty, which is literally his left hand with. Uh, he uses a cigar to draw a smiley face on his hand, and that's left. <laughs> so that tells you the level this this was sort of pitched at. But those were the big ones. And there were other things that were on when I was a kid, too, that didn't have hosts. 
But there were things like um, Haunted Hollywood, which was also on Channel 11 after Chili Billy went off the air in 1983 or 84, I forget. Um, and uh, Saturday Nightmares on the USA Network and Suspense Theater and Shock Theater and things like that. I miss those shows. I know uh, Svengoolie's still around, and, and they show him on MeTV on Saturday nights. Um, but uh, he annoys me a little bit because he cuts into the movies to make bad jokes sometimes, whereas these other people didn't do that. <laughs> yeah, he's that. There's always seems to be like two different kinds of horror hosts. There's like the Svengoolie Elvira type that kind of makes yeah. fun of the movie. Yeah. And then like a Joe Bob type that almost just gives you more information about mm -hmm. it. Yeah, Joe Bob, I've never really... I kind of missed the boat on that, but I know that he does, he takes them. I mean, he's got humor about him, but he does provide a lot of background information on the films, which is, is kind of fun. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm not as crazy about the, uh, the Elvira or uh, Svengoolie type where a lot of it's just kind of, you know, making jokes. I, I don't even mind the joke so much. Just don't cut into the movie or put silly sound effects over them. Well, yeah, well, what did uh, Bella Lugosi say in the Ed Wood movie of like, oh, she always, oh, no, it's Ed Wood that said it. Uh, she always cuts off the movie. She doesn't give it the right respect. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> well, that's true. And that was, um, oh, Vampira. Vampira would have been the one that they were talking about yep. back yes. in the 50s because she's in um, Land Night from Outer Space, funnily enough. But, yeah, I mean, that was kind of the thing where the, uh, the shtick kind of overtakes the movie, which I'm not as crazy about. I mean, I don't watch these films ironically i don't watch them making fun of them i've never been like that and because i grew up on old movies um before my kind of peers had a chance to tell me that black and white was bad or old movies are bad uh, i've never had an issue like a lot of people have a hard time with, with acting styles and things like that it doesn't bother me i mean i i can put things into a certain context and understand that you know some hammer movie from the 60s uh, was made with not a lot of money, but uh, that's okay, you know. So sometimes if the effects aren't so great, I can get past that. I can understand the context in which it was made. So I've always, I, I take them kind of seriously. I don't tend to really look down on them. Oh yeah, like Dracula AD 1972 is a go-to movie for me, even though I know how like cheesy it is at times and whatnot. I just love that acting style. And even like, well, Greg will know because I talk about it all the time of like, Bella Lugosi is like my favorite horror actor. Mm -hmm. I love oh, I that old Universal stuff. Yeah, I love Lugosi. I love Boris Karloff. Um, I mean, Christopher Lee's my favorite actor. Peter Cushing would come in number two for me. And I was always so impressed by those guys because they were they were great actors who really, you know, they may have sometimes recognized they were making crap, but they took it seriously and always gave good performances in them. Uh, Dracula AD 1972 is one of those movies I've seen so many times I could probably recite long chunks of dialogue from it. It was very much a kind of middle-aged person's idea of what kind of the hip <laughs> young movement was in the early 70s, but it's still a lot of fun. And especially when you get into the horror stuff, because the uh, all that stuff, Christopher Lee in, in the church is almost like a separate movie, because that's very gothic. And uh, yeah, I mean, you know, Lee... Lee as a child, as particularly as Dracula, really scared the hell out of me. I don't know how that stuff would play to kids nowadays. It's probably nothing. But uh, for me as a kid, I, I thought that stuff was genuinely scary. And honestly, like the best blood in any like movies whatsoever, that neon techno blood. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 They called it Kensington Gore. It was the company in England oh. that made it. It was Kensington. Um, and uh, yeah, it had a very distinctive kind of look to it. It's not natural but it looks great i mean it just looks really cool on film so i think that's what really matters 
Oh, yeah, I love it. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, because you have your book, Assault on the System, the Nonconformist Cinema of John Carpenter, and do you think it's odd that Carpenter kind of went through, like you said, in America I'm considered a bum, but it's come the whole way around now where he's got his respect, but what do you think it was where The Thing, for example, was... Basically called a big pile of shit. No one liked it when it came out. No, no one's a generalization. Well, but now it's recognized sure. as one of the greatest horror movies of all time. How do you think that ended up happening? Rotten timing. Uh, there are two movies that are regarded as masterpieces of that type, and that's The Thing and Blade Runner. And they were both bombs in 1982 because E.T. came out. Um, oh, E.T. turned you know everything around, and it was sort of start of the Reagan era and everything else, and it was this kind of ultimate escapism and. Carpenter, it's one of the things I talked a lot about in the book, Carpenter realized that the timing was going to be really bad, and he tried to talk Universal into changing the uh, release from the summer to around Halloween. And he wanted to sort of reach, you know, he, he thought maybe it would be a good idea to change the title from The Thing to the original short story title, which was Who, Who Goes There, uh, kind of give it its own separate identity and, and bump it up to Halloween, and maybe it would do better because... The, th- the Thing was actually a movie Universal thought was going to be the big summer blockbuster, and E.T. was just this little movie that they gave, you know, just to shut Spielberg up pretty much. Like, okay, you want to make your little friendly alien movie here? Here's some money. Go make it. Shut up. <laughs> and it was a huge hit. And, of course, Carpenter sees this happening. He realizes this is bad. <laughs> this is not going to be good. And he tried, and he was so proud of that film. Um, I was able to interview him for my book. And uh, uh, he couldn't have been nicer to me. He was very, very kind. I mean, he's he's got a very uh, dry sense of humor that I think sometimes people may think he seems like a jerk, but he's really not. Uh, I think he's, you know, he's just kind of a slightly sort of shy, awkward kind of a person in some respects, but very, very funny. But you could tell, you know, it was just, it was devastating for him that that movie came out. He was so proud of it, and it was a bomb. Uh, it did not do well here. And the thing of it, too, wasn't, it wasn't just that it was badly reviewed. It was also that the horror fans hated it. Um, everybody just kind of piled on it. The people who made the original thing from the 1950s piled on it. Uh, he just couldn't catch a break. And it was it was one of those movies that took home video for people to find it. And now, of course, as we say, everybody loves it. Everybody loves Blade Runner. That was another one, same year. Bad timing. So if they maybe if they would have listened to him, and put it out around Halloween time, maybe it would have been received better. But unfortunately, that movie tanked big time. And then the movie he co-produced and co-wrote um, and did the music for Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, also bombed. Um, and his contract at Universal was done. You know, that was pretty much it. So it had a bad effect on his career. I think Halloween's reaching that point just in recent years. I'm starting to talk to more and more people you know what, Halloween 3 is actually really fun once you get over that there's no Michael Myers in it. Yeah. And it took a long time, but I think it's just starting to crest that point now in general audiences. Oh, it's a, I like it a lot. I think it's I think it's a hell of a lot of fun. And I like, I mean, I think Carpenter was on to something, and I think he was right. You know, when he sat down, he never had any intention to make a sequel to Halloween. It was just going to be its own thing. But when he was, you know, being, having, you know, talking to Universal will give you all this money to make the thing, but you've also got to produce and co-write a, a Halloween sequel. He didn't really want to do it, but decided, okay, you know, I'll play the game and I'll do it. And he realized when he wrote the second Halloween, there's no story here. I've already told the story. There's nothing left, you know? So all he could do was kind of extend it through the rest of that night 
And, uh, you know, he wrote it in such a way that it looked like Michael Myers was done. Well, of course, here we are, you know, 40 years later and it's still going. <laughs> um, although for years he had nothing to do with it. Um, Halloween 3 was kind of his idea to get away from Michael Myers and have a Halloween-themed horror movie every year, which has limitless possibilities. And if, it, if Halloween 3 had been marketed better and if it had done well... Um, probably would have been very, very profitable in the long run. But because Halloween 3 did badly, that kind of made everybody kind of, you know, run for cover and regroup and just go back to Xeroxing the same movie over and over again, which is still going on in 2022. Oh, don't get me wrong, I love it, but three timelines, at least three <laughs> timelines, and I don't know how many movies later. I know it's the same thing over and over again, but I'll admit, I love it. But his score on Halloween Kills, regardless of what you think of the movie, I think it's some of his best musical work. I love that score on that. Oh, yeah. No, it's a great score. I didn't like the film. I was very disappointed with the film, but I thought the music was great. I mean, that's the thing. Even even the Carpenter films that, you know, he's made a couple that I didn't really care for. And, and you know, I, I'm honest about that in the book. I'm not just going to sit there and praise everything he's done. Although I do like the majority of his work. But even the ones of his that, I don't like his films. The music is always really good. He's, he's a really, really good musician. And of course, nowadays he's working with his son and his godson, um, who's actually the son of uh, uh, Dave Davies from the Kinks. Um, so, you know, there's, there's some nice musical DNA going on there. And, and speaking of music there too, I did get to see him and his band uh, in, again, 2015 or 16. I think it might've been 2016 actually. I got to see him in Homestead um, right outside of Pittsburgh, and that was a wonderful experience, too. Oh, that'd be a great one to see, for sure. Like, I saw that he's, like, kind of tours around here and there, and they'll play, like, the themes and whatnot, and it was like, mm -hmm. I cannot think of a more fun night. <laughs> he was great, and you, know, you can tell he's he's somebody who, you know, he's not terribly comfortable being in the limelight that way, you know, being on stage, being center stage. So he's out there and he's doing these kind of dad dance moves while he's doing this Ruben <laughs> stuff up on stage. And I was just sitting there thinking, smiling the whole time thinking, this is great. You know, he's in his 70s now. He's happy doing this. He's not, you know, uh, hating life because he's making movies and fighting with people all the time. He's just having a good time and playing his music. And I think that's great. He does look like a bit of a dork up there, but it's also something I want to see so badly. I kick myself every time for not going last time he was here. Well, hopefully they'll come again. It was a great show. I mean, I, again, he played, uh, you know, pretty much everything you'd expect him to play. And they project scenes from the films behind him and everything. And uh, it's just great. It was it was wonderful. And it was just so cool for me because I've been such a big fan of his for so long. To sit there and watch him like that was just, I thought, terrific. Oh, I'm sure. And that's like going back real quick to the thing of like Halloween three, like the start of like what he was going to do with like a horror anthology of just like you said, there's so much you can do with the Halloween title. Mm -hmm. I love the Halloween movies we've gotten, but that's one of the things I always wish is like if you have a t had a time machine, if you could go back somehow and save like the anthology series he was going to do, mm -hmm. what kind of crazy shit could have been next? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there were all kinds of ideas, and uh, they were very enthusiastic about it, you know, for that brief second. But then when it came out, and everybody just hated it. I mean, again, that movie was loathed for years. But as you said, um, over the last few years, it seems like it's starting to, more and more people start to say. I've had people tell me it's their favorite Halloween. That's not my favorite. I, I think his original Halloween's the best. But next to that one, I think it's the best. 
I did used to fall into that trap of like of probably about 10 years ago I came around to loving Halloween 3 but for years I would be always like oh I hate that one it does have Michael in it and I never actually watched it when I finally watched it I was like oh this is good mm-hmm. that's the problem no one watches it everyone yeah. instantly knows they hate it yeah and it has it has if not his best score it has one of his best scores um I really love the music for that film I think it has some of his best music Oh, definitely. Now, I do, I love this title for obvious reasons. Uh, Your Fulci book is called Splintered Visions, Lucio Fulci and his films, which (laughs) I say on this show all the time, the thing that still gets me, you know, you watch enough horror, you get almost desensitized to stuff. But there's always one thing they'll still get every horror fan. Mine is eyeball stuff. Uh And the title, the Splintered Visions, I just have flashbacks, that piece of wood going into the eye every time. That, I think sums up Fulci to me, and I don't mean that as dismissive, but the eyeball just gore, and any American movie at the time, well, probably by force, would have cut away, not Mm -hmm. held on that, and every sound effect, every inch of that wood going in. I just think there's something incredibly disturbing about it, and I love it. Yeah, eyeball violence is kind of an Italian horror thing. You could take it all the way back to Mario Bava with uh, Black Sunday, where there's a scene where a vampire has his eye uh, pierced with a with a, a, a nail, um, so that was the first sort of eyeball violence. And then Fulci started doing it, you know, even in the late '60s in some of his films. Um, he just sort of had that, you know, interest in making the audience squirm. I mean, he didn't care about offending people, and he didn't worry about you know putting people off. And he would go in for the big close-ups when everybody else would cut away, and that's. I mean, especially when you get to a movie like The New York Ripper, which is an incredibly sadistic thriller that he made. Um, you know, there's a razor blade through the eyeball in that film, which is incredibly nasty, too. <laughs> um, you know, he's he just uh, he's capable of being subtle. I mean, there are really beautiful things in his films, and he made a lot of different films in different styles, too. He didn't just make horror films. He made musicals. He made comedies. He made westerns. Um, but... His, his horror films are particularly loved by uh, by people, I think, largely because he was so just go for broke with it. The razor blade thing. I've never seen that movie. And you're describing it like, <laughs> I never want to watch this in my entire life. Yeah, New York Ripper. It's um, it's a vicious, vicious movie, and a lot of people hate it. I love it personally, but there are, I mean, as many times as I've seen it, there are still parts I kind of, you know, squint <laughs> a little bit because it's pretty rough. I was wondering real quick if you had um if you see Malignant. You know, I didn't see Malignant, although I've heard enough about it to know there's there seems to be a kind of stylistic um, influence uh, from Italian horror films on it. Oh yeah, definitely like the black glove killer, the knife. He's in a trench coat. It's definitely like a who done it for a while. It's like Fulci meets um, uh, Christ, Hen and Lauder. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. The Hen and Lauder, I know. Uh, I've heard about that, that there's there's something that, you know, if you've seen Basket Case, <laughs> you, you'll know. Um, no, I haven't. I mean, I've heard mixed things about it. Some people seem to really like it. Some people did not, but I just haven't gotten around to it yet. This is perfect timing to have you on because I can't believe I'm saying this, but there's a new Argento movie coming out this year. I believe it just debuted, actually, overseas. Uh, is there anything you know about this yet? Since you seem to be aficionado on Italian horror, is there anything you can tell us about this? Well, I was in a good position to hear some early stuff about it because I, I wrote a book about Argento that came out. Um, God, I think it, it came out at the end of 
2020. And by that stage, he was trying very hard to get this movie off the ground. It's a script that he originally intended to film about 20 years ago, uh, but the production company got into some financial hot water and the script got tied up in rights issues and it looked like he was never going to be able to make it. By way of just being honest about it, his last three films have been pretty bad and they, they didn't do well and uh, his reputation has suffered a little bit because of them. And, you know, given his age, he's, he's going to be 82 this year and everything else. I thought this movie's not going to get made. You know, it's just not, not going to happen. But amazingly it did. He filmed it last, um, last summer and uh, it's, uh, it's called Oki Alineri, um, which translates as dark glasses. And it deals with a, uh, uh, a prostitute who is targeted by a serial killer during an eclipse um, there's a violent car crash. She ends up losing her sight, has to adjust to being, being blind. And, uh, the killer is still out there, still, still sort of lurking around and continuing to kill other prostitutes and has her very much on his mind. Um, it premiered last Friday at the Berlin film festival and the reviews have been pretty good. Um, for the first time in a long time, it seems like uh, one of his movies is going over pretty well. Um, it's going into general release in Italy on the 24th of this month and, uh, Shudder has picked it up for streaming in the U S so yes. coming here through Shudder. I hope it gets some oh, kind good. of theatrical release too. Cause I've never had a chance to see an Argento movie in the theater, but I mean, you know, as usual, the, the more mainstream publications are being a little bit snide towards it, but even they are kind of saying, you know, there's some really good things in this movie and, um, the fans who've seen it, uh, you know, I've talked to a few people who saw it at, at the Berlin Festival have, have said it's really good. So I'm very excited to see it. I didn't think he was going to get another movie off the ground in his 80s, but here he is, um, you know, and hopefully if it does well, maybe he'll make some more. Oh, I'm excited, especially since you said it's going to be on Shutter, because I'm just like, oh, yes, yeah, so I can just sit in my living room with a bag of chips and watch the, watch the new Argento movie? Sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I think it's great. I mean, I'm really, I'm excited. I mean, the, the, like I said, the last three films were, were not good, but um, you never know. I mean, sometimes people hit sort of bad patches and you shouldn't write them off. And he's made enough great movies that I'll watch anything he ever makes. But uh, this one sounds very promising. Especially at, do you say he's 82 years old now? He will be this September, yeah. So, I mean, and for a period of time, he was having some health problems and things, too. And these are all kind of things that make you think, yeah, you know, he's probably not going to get another movie going. But, I mean, good for him. I'm, I'm very happy for him. Yeah, that's wild. That's what I was. I can't believe I'm saying this. I just never thought we'd see that. Uh, we're running low on time here, but where can people follow you at? Like, and pick up the books and everything like this. Uh, I'm on Facebook under my own name. You know, I don't, I don't imagine Troy Howard's a very common name, so probably easy to find me there. Uh, my books are all available through Amazon. Um, Midnight Marquee publishes a bunch of them, but they don't have their own, uh, sort of ordering anymore. So you have to go through Amazon. Uh, if you go on there and just search my name, um, I think I have something like 15 books at this point and, uh, there's more coming. And uh, I do a lot of audio commentaries as well for Blu-ray releases and things like that. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's a lot of me out there for those who are who are so inclined. Well, great. Thank you so much for joining us. This was great and honestly enlightening on a lot of things I was curious about. No, thank you. And uh, thanks for having me on. And, you know, if you're ever desperate for somebody to come and talk again, just feel free to ask me anytime. 
Oh, definitely. Because I didn't even get to bring up Black Sunday and like my love of that movie. So at some point, yeah, that would be awesome. <laughs> yeah, I'm always in the mood to talk about Mario Bava. All right, great. Well, thank you again so much. All right, thank you.